what drives you? you know, there's a lot of ways to make money, but the runway in terms of how much that's going to drive you and fulfill you is very, very limited. It has to be a much bigger conviction and drive than a couple of dollars. You know, every single very successful person that I've met and had the privilege of working with or being mentored by, like within five minutes, it's clear that these guys are not driven, guys in the gender neutral sense, these people are not driven by money. They're driven by something much bigger, much deeper. If you're paying attention, you'll know that this is season two of the One-Eyed Man podcast, and we've been speaking about social entrepreneurship. What does that mean? What do we mean when we say an entrepreneur is a social entrepreneur? And that's part of what I've been trying to figure out is, does that mean that that person is focused exclusively on creating social impact? What exactly does social impact mean? and How do we measure that? I think this is an important question because it's clear that there is so much in the world that needs to be solved and that entrepreneurship and certainly business can play a significant role in making that change happen. But how do we do that consciously? How do we do that deliberately? This was a big part of the conversation that I had with my very good friend Duke Milan on today's show. Duke is a partner in African Works Ventures. It's a well, it's a multifaceted business that has in part a, uh, an investment uh, strategy, it has in part an advisory strategy, it has a private equity play, and you'll hear about all of those focus areas in our conversation on the show. Uh, he's based in Hong Kong. He's in South Africa right now, trapped here because of lockdown, and it's been a, a particularly productive and really informative time for him. But he speaks about his journey from a township in Pretoria to Hong Kong, he speaks about the enormous opportunities that he's identified along the way and how he is investing and creating meaning out of those opportunities. But most significantly, he speaks about how we as emerging economy entrepreneurs can think about creating solutions, not just that solve problems for our local context, that can be exported into the world beyond our own and how impactful and valuable and value creating that can be. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Duke. So this is a real treat. This is a real treat because <laughs> normally you'd be a guest that I'd have to dial in over some fancy app, but I get to have you in studio today and not by any <laughs> any design of your own, right? So I'm, I'm, gl I'm glad to be here. I genuinely am, Mike. <laughs> Brother, how is it that I find you in Johannesburg? Aren't you meant to be in Hong Kong? I am meant to be in Hong Kong, but South Africa is home. Of course. And, and I'm always happy to be, to be back home. So I, I came here just before the lockdown for some work. And mm -hmm. then my wife was going to come with some friends of ours from Hong Kong for their yes. first trip to South Africa. And we had this whole thing planned oh, for a year. The bush yeah. kept on the whole thing. <laughs> and then the lockdown happened. Um, and I've been here for four months at my mom's place, enjoying it. Um, but it's, it's obviously a time of enormous complexity and I guess paradox because with challenges comes opportunities, but it is obviously a time of enormous, enormous challenge. Yeah, that old adage of, you know, life is what happens when you're making other plans never Abs seems more pertinent. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Now, there was a lot that happened, but I mean, it feels like, what is it, seven or eight years since we met at ABSA? More. It, yeah, more. maybe 10 Two years. Th yeah, 2007, 2008. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. as far back as that. Yeah. Because it, it feels like seven or eight decades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it feels like it's a, a couple lifetime. of lifetimes. It's absolutely have a lifetime ago. 
Tell me a little bit about what what's happened since the ABSA journey, and mm. maybe even you can give us a bit of a precursor to how you yeah. got to that place. Yeah, I, th- and, I think I think yeah. I think I think that'll be good. I think that'll be good framing for a lot of our discussion. Sure. So, I grew up in Pretoria, very typical background, South African story. You know, grew up in the township. I guess I lucked out by having a very phenomenal single mother, instilled in us a sense of self mm. um, and the confidence to know that any room we enter is better because we're there. Mm but really grounded in a humility and a, and a we mentality and not a me mentality. Also, you know, was privileged enough to have a great ed- education. Yeah. Um, and, you know, cumulatively, you know, that's part of what's been empowering for us and catalyst for us to really pursue our, our dreams and opportunities. Mm. I, I always had a love for words and a love for storytelling. And this notion is crazy. Like there's no, like there's nothing on the page and then five minutes later, there's stuff on the page that can move people, hmm. make people take decisions or evoke emotion. I mean, that's just, that was always crazy and fascinating for me. And so I was, was leaning towards journalism. Was reading encouraged? Absolutely. From a very young, absolutely. What did you love to read when, uh, when you were younger? Um, everything. Yeah. Everything I could get my hands on. This is obviously, I grew up in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so pre-digital. Yeah. So it was like whatever's around, garden, home, books, soccer books. Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest, encyclopedias, whatever. I read everything I could. And I think that's another important thing, you know, just instilling in kids a sense of curiosity and and discovery. Um, And journalism was actually the path that I wanted to follow. Mm. Um, A, the love of words, but B, my grandfather was at Drum Magazine uh, during its heyday. And ended up being one of its longest running editors. And so I had this nostalgic, romantic thing about journalism. But the closer I got to varsity, the more I started researching and realized journalists don't get paid. Mm, yeah, of course. <laughs> Particularly not, you know, in the early stages of their career. Sure, at that um, time. Yeah. At that time. And it was very hierarchical. And this is obviously 20 years ago, you know, when I was still in school, etc. So there was a rite of passage almost that you exactly. had to pass you know, through as a journalist exactly. in order to get to the the, the more powerful, more influential <laughs> positions. Exactly. That, you know, that, that was it. And that just didn't make sense to me. And I discovered PR, public relations, corporate communication. Oh, okay. Here's a career that can marry my love for words and storytelling with what could potentially be an interesting career. Mm. And that, you know, that was the path I studied PR and that sort of started the professional journey. Okay, great. Where did you study? I studied at Pretoria Technicon. Uh, when I graduated, it was Tuana University of Technology, but Pretoria Tech. So I grew up in Pretoria, went to Pretoria Technicon. And part of what I loved about the Technicon is you have to do this internship mm. to get a diploma. Um, and so even before I had a diploma, I had my internship at the South African Nuclear Energy Corporation, the, oh. the O-R-E-C-A-R. Okay. That it was wild. You know, it was... Yeah. Um, that's like where Vota Brasson cooked biological weapons, like it was, you know. Um, but this is not 2003, so it's obviously a very different time in our history. But sure. it's an important institution that drives our nuclear strategy. And I was this intern, but who had the confidence and, um, you know, the wherewithal to navigate that and not be defined by my title of mm. intern. And, uh, you know, that was part of what I think helped penny drop for me to say okay if you're good enough and you work hard um and you back yourself you can do some you can do some cool stuff were there characters in that early part of your journey individuals who 
whether it was structured or not, played quite a significant role from a mentorship or, or coaching or encouragement perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's one gent as an example who his name was, is Wally Yune. Yeah. And he had been at Nexa for probably 40, 50 years. He was yes. in his late 70s, early 80s. And we lived close to each other. Okay. And so he used to give me a lift. And he used to go to work at like 6 a.m. for some crazy reason. And so I would have to wake up at 5 a.m. to be ready for one little take, choice you know? in the matter, yeah. And on these trips to work, you know, he would tell me his stories. And you know, this is like an old Afrikaans dude. And I'm a 19, 20-year-old, you know, black kid and just very different. Mm. You know, we had some similarities, but we very, very different. But, you know, just learning stories from him and him seeing my career progress at Nexa. Like I was made editor of the company newsletter as an example, yeah. which is not Time magazine, but it's a big deal sure, in that sure. context. You know, and he was so proud of that and, oh, you amazing. know, gave me advice, etc. So, you know, at different points in my career, there have been people like that. Um, and mentorship in general is something that I take very, very seriously. Um, you know, my passion, and we can talk a little bit about it later on, is helping high potential people realize their potential. I like get a kick out of that. Yes. I love doing that. Um, and mentorship should be symbiotic. You know, people you have around you, you should learn from them and you should teach them stuff. And it should be this, you know, magic that, you know, you light my fire, I light your fire and, mm -hmm. and we together can be better than, than we would be on our own. Um, so yeah, there've been, there've been tons of people like that. And I can chat about a little, a few of the others as we have this conversation. And this keeps popping up in other conversations throughout the season and even before is this the lost art of apprenticeship because mm, um, mm. the phrase mentor has become a little bit stigmatized mm -hmm. uh, recently and speaks to kind of a i'm over here mm -hmm. you're down here mm -hmm. i will impart my infinite wisdom mm -hmm. to you and you're lucky to get the time with me you know, yeah there's a bit of a kind of power dynamic yeah that's inherent abs in the abs abs absolutely and that should be broken because it's, sure. it's not it's, it's not what it's, it's about it's not what it's about yeah. what it should be about i mean one of the coolest mentorship programs i've actually seen is a reverse mentorship program mm. by axa mm. where you know 25 year old 23 year old kids entering the workforce is mentoring somebody who's in their mid 50s to to how not to print their emails <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's like okay these are digital natives kids amazing, who, yeah. who can teach you know 55 year old executive something and vice versa um, and that's just you know to the heart of what you're talking about which is you know it is a it is not a one-way street and there shouldn't be a power dynamic it's about what can i learn how can i grow how can i help you grow and vice versa and so you know i spend a lot of my time in that mentoring world whether it's formal or informal have you heard of the partners for possibility program i'm sure you've stumbled yes, across it yes i actually yeah. the school teachers the, yes the i'm hoping to get louise yeah. onto the show yeah um, no it's a phenomenal program for this exact reason though, yeah. this is the secret sauce mm -hmm. right because there's mm -hmm. there are mentorship programs mm -hmm. uh, a dime a dozen mm -hmm. but this is very much structured around the co-learning and symbiotic nature of a you know what happens when we learn together rather yeah. than one of us takes the you know so you have business leaders who are coming into school mm -hmm. environments and meeting with principals and probably walking in there going i'm pretty sure i know what's right for you sure i'm pretty sure, sure i'd be able to do a better job of this and realizing immediately that that would be impossible sure you've never been faced with a level of 
regulatory constraints or restrict, mm-hmm. you know, or, or red tape or bureaucracy. Absolutely. Plus, you've got to motivate your your staff and pupils and involve parents and get the community buy-in. Mm-hmm. And you've got to do all of this with no resources Absol- whatsoever. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, absolutely. It's, it's an impossible job. Yeah. Um, and you only realize that and appreciate that yeah. when you you put onto a level playing field. Absolutely. Hard to find those situations, yeah. right? But Ab- extremely absolutely. powerful when we do. And when they go back into the workplace and their roles, they're more empowered. Exactly. They have a higher sense of empathy for what's going on in the country. And they're more wired to what some of the challenges are and they can be better leaders. You sure. know? So I absolutely you know, think initiatives like this we should see way more of, in, in, particularly in a country with you know, as, as much complexity as, as we have. Yeah, it's hard to think of a single skill that is more pertinent for leaders today than this idea of being able to appreciate the systemic nature of things. Mm-hmm. The, the, I'm a small part of that bigger whole. It sure. doesn't matter how powerful I sure. am. And being able to truly have empathy for the person on the other side of the, yes. the table yeah. and put your feet in their shoes. Um, you know, that's really a differentiator in a world um, that we're living in today. So you've jumped from system to system to system, yeah. uh, both from a, you know, kind of in the sense of moving <laughs> from a corporate environment where I'd argue, you know, you cut your teeth professionally mm-hmm. into an entrepreneurial yeah. uh, journey and also uh, moved from a familiar ecosystem mm-hmm. in, in South Africa into a slightly unfamiliar one. Yeah. T- tell us about those two yeah, journeys. Uh, yeah, I'll start with actually when I first did this, which was actually in my school days. Okay. And that is actually when I think back and I've sort of started to codify it, those were the tools that has enabled me to do all of these things is I was very lucky to be able to go to a very good school in Pretoria, um, one of the top boys schools when I just started going to school. At the age of 10, I got expelled because I was a naughty, we can't, I was a naughty kid. <laughs> Hardly surprising. But <laughs> um, and then I went to the school in our township in Yesteris in Pretoria. And after that, to, um, a Model C school. And this is sort of in the mid-90s to then matriculating in 2000. So experiencing that, I was you know, going from the poorest kid in the school to the richest kid in the school mm. to all of these different worlds. Mm, that's interesting. You know, yeah. And you begin to understand this idea of empathy and this idea of how can you still remain authentic but be in another person's context and see the world through, through their eyes. And that's really been very helpful for me, you know, moving from – PR agencies to government to APSA to the discovery role to moving to Hong Kong and now entrepreneurship and, 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 and doing things, you know, in a global context. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the heart of your question, I was at discovery, as you know, yep. and I want to chat a little bit about some of what I learned there in the course of this conversation and how sure. that has shaped me. But I was there for quite a while and started dabbling in working internationally because, you know, Discovery is obviously globalizing um, very aggressively, Mm -hmm. but really wanted to play on the global stage proper. And Asia made a lot of sense um, because of its dynamism, the growth. It is where the world is in reality in Mm -hmm. terms of a lot of the growth and those type of trends. Um, You know, Mike, the biggest challenge for me has actually been moving to entrepreneurship Mm. um, from this cocoon of corporate I did not understand how difficult it is. I did not understand how much I didn't know about myself as an individual. Mm. Um, and I also didn't tr- truly understand what drives me. Okay. Um, and 
I genuinely thought I had a good sense of self and I knew myself, but entrepreneurship has been phenomenal. You know, mm. it's been three years of honey and pain, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, roller coaster ride. Roller coaster ride of note, but I, you know, I don't regret a minute of it. You know, it's been, it's been fantastic. And I'm glad that I, that I've joined you in the choppy waters of, of entrepreneurship. What's the single biggest lesson you've learned? Um, Sure, that's a tough one. There's a bunch, but I'll I'll give you one or two. Um, so one is integrity. Mm-hmm. Like you have to honestly be clear on what your line is, you know, because you will be tested. You continually tested in this world, mm. um, and shortcuts are easy to make. I was joking with a friend of mine, you know, when this state capture commissions and all of this stuff was going on. I was like, bro, I'm so happy that I'm poor, mm. you know, because my name's not going to come up in any of this stuff. Um, but it was, you know, the tongue-in-cheek thing around just being very clear on the legacy you want to leave, be, being yeah. very clear on how you want to live your life. And so integrity is really something that I take really seriously. I think that that's one. And then the other one is, you know, what are you passionate about? You know, what drives you? There's a lot of ways to make money, mm. but the runway in terms of how much that's going to drive you and fulfill you is very, very limited. It has to be a much bigger conviction and drive than a couple of dollars. You know, every single very successful person that I've met and had the privilege of working with or being mentored by, like within five minutes, it's clear that these guys are not driven, guys in the gender neutral sense, these people are not driven by money. They're driven by something mm. much bigger, much deeper. Those are probably the two lessons that have been crystallized and really cemented in this time. Not things that I didn't understand, but entrepreneurship has really opened me up to like at the core of what drives people and successful high-performance individuals. Yeah, because I suppose if you don't know how you're going to respond to a certain context or a certain problem or a certain challenge – Entrepreneurship has a way of Absolutely. introducing that to you, uh, whether you like it or not. Absolutely. The third, actually, the third, which is, you know, I'm not going to rank them, but I feel very strongly about those other two. But the third is just being very laser focused and single minded around mm. what yeah. you want to achieve. Mm. Um, I learned a lot of this from Adrian Gore, the founder of Discovery, and a bunch of other, you know, visionary leaders. But really be clear on what you want to do um, because distractions um, happen. Yeah. Um, and yes, leaders must be agile and leaders must be able to pivot and all of the stuff that we know, but within the context of being very clear on your vision. You know, a, a year and a half ago, um, when I was at my lowest point in my entrepreneurial journey, which has only been like a three-year journey, three-and-a-half-year journey, but, you know, the lowest point in my entrepreneurial journey, I got headhunted by a very significant company mm. for a great role, tons of money, mm. Um and I said, no. Mm. And my wife was like, you crazy. My mom was like, you crazy. Hold, hold on a second. Let's you know, think about this. Let's yeah. think about this uh, for more than five minutes. But, you know, I had a deep conviction around we're building something really cool. We, we, we've got an important role to play that's bigger than me and bigger than us as a company. And I said, no. Um, and today we're on the cusp of, of a partnership with that company. Mm. Um, where I'm working, you know, with them and not for them. Amazing. Um, in a way that I could have never envisioned if I had 
not gone on this path. Um, and, and so, you know, you keep learning, relearning these things like actually, yes, stay focused. Let me, let me give you a fourth one, actually, now that you've got me going. Um, because I feel like we, there's we, a book in this. We're in a, time, <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a period of enormous difficulty and complexity. And, you know, back to the Discovery story. Discovery was founded in 1992. Mm. 1992, you and I not were... Not the time you should be starting you know, a business. You know, yeah, 1992, you and I yeah. were kids, so we may yeah. not like truly remember, but it was a time of enormous, enormous complexity in South yeah. Africa. Yeah. Country was in flames, white fears, black hope. Yep. It was a very complex time. You know, yeah. So for, for 27, precipice, 28-year-old white... stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. For a 27-year-old you know, white kid to leave a great job at Liberty to go and start this thing is crazy. Like, mm. what are you doing? Mm. But, you know, there was a core belief that this life insurance thing is a bit broken. I think I can fix it. I think fixing it can help the country and help people. Um, let me go and do that. And so in these times, let's not lose sight of that, that, um, you know, nobody would pray for a COVID. This is terrible. We've, of course. we've of had course. enormous loss of lives and livelihoods are under threat. You know, that's a reality, you know. But what is it within our control? You know, I've been very deliberate in the last four months of limiting my news intake, limiting sure. my particularly fake news intake. And thanks, Mike, for your mind map. That's been very helpful <laughs> for the country. But but limiting my news intake um, and just focusing on what's within my control. How do I remain optimistic, remain positive, and help the people within my ecosystem do the same? You know, not be blind to what's happening around us, but not be paralyzed by it either. Which I, I guess brings us to the core of what we wanted to talk about today, mm -hmm. because there's this realization that, I mean, it's hard to think of a time on this continent or specifically in South Africa where there hasn't been a degree of unpredictability, mm -hmm. unrest, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And yes, it feels more visceral and more apparent now and, and possibly more unifying because in a way COVID is a common enemy that doesn't have any political bias sure. or any economic bias. It just it affects everybody. Mm -hmm. Um we spoke quite a bit around how important it is that even when things seem uncertain, even when it's so unpredictable, we have to forge ahead and create. Mm -hmm. We have to make mm -hmm. um, the future of this place, the future of our respective livelihoods depends on our ability to make yeah, and create. Absolutely. And we, I guess we spoke briefly in our, you know, kind of the precursor conversations to this one that, you know, we talk a lot about social entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. but in this place, we don't. Maybe we don't even have the luxury of doing so. Yeah, maybe yeah. you want to kind of comment on that quickly and and explain why. Yeah, why I, said that. Uh, I mean, I love your your framing around we need to make and we need to create, and I would, you know, continue with that and say we need to solve. Mm. And my entire orientation is around what are we solving for? Mm. You know, you're gonna get sick of me talking about discovery examples, but as I said, it was very formative, and you know, a lot of my lessons that were fundamental, I, I learned there. Mm. But you know, discovery was founded, or Vitality, it was founded in '97. Yeah, you know, Michael Porter and and Kramer came out with that seminal Harvard Business Review shared value yep. in you know 2011, mm. a long time after Vitality was founded. Sure, you know, today they hold up Vitality as this gold standard of shared value and it gets celebrated as a model of shared value, et cetera, which it is, mm. you know, similarly leapfrog the impact investment firm, um, which we don't celebrate enough in South Africa, which we should, mm. um, was launched before the term impact investment was coined. Sure. Point being is what were they solving for? You mm. know, 
the solution, like you can call it whatever you want. You know, I don't actually, I'm, I'm indifferent. You know, I do believe that we have to have subject matter experts. And like, like I, I listened to the conversation you had with, with Oni and she's a global leader in, yeah. in the space. And we need that. You yeah. know, we absolutely need, you know, folks who, who truly understand the academic rigor grounding around it and how to translate that into the real world. And she's, you know, a global, you know, a leader in that space but my personal orientation is what are we solving for um, and let's solve um, and what we call it you know people can call it whatever they want so yeah. you know to your question around challenges in South Africa and more broadly in emerging markets we have a lot of challenges you know pre-COVID youth unemployment was 50 percent mm. you know unemployment was 30 percent post-COVID we're going to be in a much worse situation yeah. so any businesses are going to be social enterprises just by virtue of, of employing people. Sure. You know, and so I tend not to get sort of hung up on some of that framing, but it's around what are we solving for? Um, and let's solve for that. I think that's one, one part of the answer. I think the other part of the answer is in these times of enormous complexity, the solutions will be robust. They have to be robust. Yes. Because the solution, because the problem is, is complex. And when the solution is for a problem that's, that's complex, that solution has got a lot of integrity to it. It is robust and it has a lot of applicability beyond the narrow. Again, discovery, perfect example. Solving for an issue in South Africa, not enough doctors, you know, quadruple burden of disease, rich people diseases, poor people diseases. How do you solve this? You can't just throw money at it. You have to change health behavior. Mm. Boom. That's a global problem today. It's a global business. Sure. It's that simple. You know, then there's a couple of other businesses that I'm involved with now that we can chat about in the course of this conversation, but that have done a similar thing is solve a problem in an emerging market where it is a real, real problem, not just a cool idea trying to find a problem, but it's actually a solution speaking to a problem. Um, and then, you know, once that problem is solved, or at least there's traction around the problem, it's okay, where else can we take this solution? Yeah. Which is, you know, often we think about this in, in the opposite way, right? What mm. can we borrow from established markets yeah. that, that can help solve? And that's a bit of a kind of a Band-Aid approach, isn't it? It yeah. doesn't, it, it's not always appreciative of the complexity of the system that we're talking about. Yeah. This word that you use, I think it's a really important word, this robust solution, because mm -hmm. let's go back to mm -hmm. 97 and, mm -hmm. and vitality and the shared. And I think most people that are listening to the podcast will be familiar mm -hmm. with the model. Um, there are easier ways to make money than that. Absolutely. Right. There, there are quicker and easier ways to make money. When you talk about robustness, mm -hmm. What do you mean mm -hmm. in light of the fact that there are quicker and easier ways to line your pockets? Mm -hmm. What do we mean by that mm -hmm. in terms of from a business building perspective? Sure. I think it is, it is worthwhile adding some, some more specificity to that. Let me talk again about discovery because that's, that's the train of thought, sure. but then I'll, I'll talk about another example um, and, and bring some more, sort of make us more tangible. I mean, if you think about insurance historically, insurance was about you get sick, or you pass away and the insurer will compensate you as a customer. Yeah. Um, and that's how insurance has, has run for 100 plus years. And as it became commoditized, compensate you within the restrictions within the, of within the, the terms and conditions of the, the contract, which were made as vague and… Absolutely. Well, and non-customer centric sure. as, as possible. And too often 
we live in a world where, oh, that's the way we do things. Yeah. And that's the way it's done. Um, but the problems in the South African context were a lot more acute because we have massive inequality. Mm. We have a shortage of health professionals. So you can't just accept that reality because there isn't enough money. In markets where there is enough money and there are resources, you can be less resourceful in trying to find solutions. And so in the discovery context, as an example, the robustness comes from the model, which is can we in a sustainable way make sure that customers get more value? Mm. Can we in a sustainable way improve our rigidity from a customer retention perspective? Um, can we reduce lapses? Can we bend the cost curve and bend the mortality curve so that people live longer and healthier while still benefiting from this ecosystem? Sure. Um, that is a holy grail in an insurance world and is yeah. robust. Yeah. And it is at the heart of why that organization now has joint venture partnerships with six of the top 10 you know, global insurers mm. because the solution is truly robust because it spoke to a real problem. Um, a business that we're involved with that I think is another example of this robustness, but also innovation from an emerging market problem is a company called Flex Club mm. uh, run by a very good friend and business associate, Tinasha Rosane, uh, who's now based in Amsterdam. But he he, he grew up here and um, he was working for Uber mm -hmm. in South Africa and helped Uber figure out how to scale by partnering with, with financial institutions and using the Uber data as a way to extend credit and give car loans to people who ordinarily the banks would have said no to. Yeah, build and better algorithms around Build better lending, algorithms. Yeah. Um, and that was a global innovation first for Uber. Mm. And, and he went on to build a great career with Uber, eventually running vehicle solutions for Europe, Middle East and Africa out of Amsterdam. And eventually he spun out on his own um, and built Flex Club, which essentially is continuing that ethos mm. of, we recognize that in emerging markets, access to assets is a challenge. Mm. You know, people do not have access to credit. People do not have um, necessarily homes that they can use as collateral or assets that can use as collateral. Yeah, but I then, mean, the amount of conversations I've had with driver partners in a car where they go, when I get my own car. Absolutely. Then the step change in enrichment and mobility it, out of that is just trans astonishing. It's transformational. Right? Yeah. It's transformational. And so, you know, they've built Flex Club off their chassis that says, how do we, in a smart way, put cars in the driveways of people who, who want the cars? And, you know, from one to two to three cars, that changes somebody's life. That challenge is not unique to South Africa. Mm -hmm. You know, after launching in South Africa, um, they launched in Mexico. We, we're looking to help them launch in Asia now mm. because in Southeast Asia, they are the same challenges. Sure. Um, but, but to your point, to your question around robustness, the robustness is there's a real challenge around access and there's a very smart solution around enabling that access. And the, that solution is extremely robust and can travel. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with 
well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. There's two things that, you know, certainly in those two examples uh, seem to be true and also seem to be common denominators in many, many of the other examples that mm-hmm. people have cited in previous shows, or I imagine would would talk about in future, and there's so the first one is a longer time frame for value creation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the key stakeholders in the firm and the business are interested in creating value for themselves mm-hmm. and their, their, you know, their network of senior managers, stakeholders, employees, whatever it might be, but with a longer time frame. Mm-hmm. We're not thinking about exiting in in eighteen months mm-hmm. or to some of the ridiculous and often and in intentionally destructive timeframes that are so characteristic of the unicorn Silicon mm-hmm. Valley uh, mm-hmm. mind frame, right? Um, and the second thing is creating that value in a time frame, but in such a way that nobody really has to lose. Mm-hmm. Like if you draw concentric circles mm-hmm. around the shareholders, yeah. the most senior, most influential people in the business, None of the concentric circles, whether it's the supplier or the middleman or the um, the buyer on the other side or the customer or the customer's family or mm-hmm. the community that it, nobody's suffering yeah. or nobody's quality of life or nobody's well-being or nobody's self-worth is being diminished mm-hmm. because of the existence of that thing. I love now, I love that. But I, that gets back to the whole thing about that's complex to think about. I, that's I, a big system. I right? love that. It's complex to think about, but it's actually very intuitive and very simple for us to think about because of the environment that we come from. Yeah. Is can we have responsible capitalism? Can we have capitalism that grows not at the expense of the public um and social good? Mm. Yes. You know, we, we we can and should do that. Um, and that's part of the reason why a leapfrog could, could start in South Africa and now have, you know, um, the leading um, impact investment fund globally. That's yeah. why Vitality could do that and, and, and others because it's grounded in this, there has to be a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. There has to be a better way. Yeah. Um, we, we still are the country in the world with the highest inequality. Sure. And so how can we try and operate like they do in other parts of the world when, when we have our own very, very unique challenges? And, we, and, and, you know, these examples are too few. We need more of these type of examples. Yeah. But, but, but in general, you know, we're seeing a lot more sensitivity, understanding from the private sector that we have a role to play in helping society and COVID's been a fantastic example where South Africa's private sector has been phenomenal in coming to the party because they recognize that, you know, they have to be part of the solution. And and then from a public sector point of view, there's increasing recognition that no single entity can solve any intractable problem on their own. Sure. That an ethos of partnership and how do we harness the skill set, passion of people in the private sector, people in society, ordinary citizens, the government, um, NGOs, towards a common outcome you know that is something that is gaining momentum universally um, and, and I think we can and should be playing a much more active role as case studies as South Africa for what that means I think that's what's so attractive about this place mm-hmm. sure I was born here sure I'm going to be patriotically biased to, mm-hmm. to this place but it's 
it's not to say that there haven't been or aren't opportunities to create value elsewhere mm-hmm. or, or whatever it might be. But there's something to be said about a place that is this complex mm. and this, uh, where you do have a Gini coefficient that's through the roof, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. literally the, the highest in the world, mm-hmm. barring Lesotho, which, you know, doesn't really sound like an exception mm. in our case. If you can fix it here, if you can create mm-hmm. a product or a, to get back to your original point, a solution that works with this many variables in this heterogeneous a society, that's going to work everywhere. Absolutely. That's, that's got to work or, or, anywhere. Or, or, or at least in a lot of other, other places than Yeah, there. yeah. You know, ab- absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I'm extremely passionate about at the moment, uh, well, I, I have looked at it and I've always had an intuitive feel around it, is edtech. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, growing up, as I said, you know, I had this very diverse ed- schooling background, you know. So the preppy private school that I went to, one of the things that they used to do was like, we used to sit under the trees and they used to teach us, you know, and it's like hardy does chirping and whatever, but we used to sit, you know, under the, under the tree. And then, you know, when I went to school in the township and whatever, one of the things that you learn that you hear is, you know, we need to stop letting our children learn under the trees and whatever. And that was always like a weird thing for me. Like, hang on, this has got nothing to do with a tree. Mm. This has got to do with the quality of the teacher. Sure. And the ecosystem around yeah, the interaction know, between you know, pupils and yeah. so so even as a kid, I I was Learners, like this this feels a bit like I think we're diagnosing the problem a, a bit wrong, you know. Yeah. And and fast forward where we are now in the world, like we know, you know, COVID is just putting an exclamation point on the fact that there is enormous room for disruption in education, Gosh. without a doubt. So so we've we've taken a stake in a ed tech business. Okay. Um. Uh, piloting here and in the US, but but we think it's got global applicability. You know, South Africa's education system is um, you know microcosm of the inequalities. You know, some of the best quality education and some of the worst. You know, what we spend on education in this country is higher than some of our peers, but the outcomes are lower. So there's, there's enormous opportunity to to improve that, and there's commercial opportunity in that and obviously the social impact opportunity in that so you know again you know there where there's opportunity there's there's where there's problems there's opportunities um but it has global applicability yeah and we are not building that business to only contribute to you know addressing south africa's it's a math literacy focused um platform it's not only for here. You know, sure. we think we can take that to other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. We definitely think we can take it to to parts of Southeast Asia because Southeast Asia. It's, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of similarities. GDP, psychographics. You know, countries like Myanmar, Vietnam, Thailand with sub-Saharan Africa. But one of the the things that's been fascinating for me that I'm still trying to discover, truly understand, in terms of the ed tech space there is or or, or education ecosystem is that parents will spend a lot of money on their children yeah but it is often output based not outcome based so if i put little mike through extra maths and extra this and extra that i've done my job Mm. if Mm. if mike doesn't get into mit it's on him you know which you know i is is a different worldview it's a different approach but the point is you know there is a massive multi-billion dollar ecosystem around tutors around extra this around extra that so if we build something that's robust here that's actually speaking to outcomes Mm. how do we in a demonstrable way improve in our instance math literacy or somebody else can have a different play 
we can take that to different parts of the world where there's already spend around these issues, where there's already, you know, deep aspirational desire among, among parents and, and pupils to improve. So that's a massive part of our orientation. And, you know, almost everything we do, we do because we believe that this is a South African innovation that can go global or, or an African innovation because we do some stuff in different parts of Africa. But it's an emerging market innovation that is robust and that can travel. So now... You keep talking about this proverbial we. We've spoken a little bit about Flex Club. We've spoken about the EdTech Play. We're talking about Africa Works Ventures. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah, is yeah. that a is that a private equity play? Yeah, no, or? it's actually that's that's part of the vision that yeah. that will um, you know have have a private equity vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I'll I'll take a step back. So basically, went from discovery to a communication consultancy in Hong Kong, global consultancy. Mm-hmm. Um, very specifically a consultancy because I wanted to broaden my horizons. As you know, I was at APSA for a while, I was at mm-hmm. Discovery for a while, so I was very much a financial services PR guy. And I wanted to, you know, flap my wings and work in other sectors. And that's what I was able to do at the consultancy. Sure. You know, for example, ended up running the Burberry PR account for Asia and oh, wow. and China's their biggest market. And I am not a luxury fashion guy, <laughs> as you know. But the point being that was phenomenal Learning and and growth and exposure, you know, work with Alibaba and Huawei and Manchester City and a whole bunch of really interesting companies that I would have never had exposure to if I'd stayed in in an in-house capacity, if I'd moved to Hong Kong and done that. Sure. And what I ended up truly realizing is the momentum around China, Africa, and just how much of a priority Africa is for China and that... Um, the China-Africa relationship is going to be one of the most important geopolitical relationships in the next 30 to 40 years. Um, so we started helping, this is when I was still at the consultancy, um, proactively helping African governments position themselves in Asia, storytelling, put them on Bloomberg, media training, the usual. But the penny dropped for me when I was like, hang on, what are you doing? You're actually not just helping them with PR, you're helping mm-hmm. them drive foreign direct investment. Yeah. You're helping them with market access. And so that was the pivot for me to you know, do what I'm doing now, which is um, helping high-growth African businesses raise money in Asia. And we'll, we take an equity position. Sometimes sometimes we'll just take a fee for, for what we help them raise. Um, but over time, we, we want to build up a vehicle where we can you know, truly start to invest. But at the moment, it's helping high-growth people like Flex Club expand or raise money and in the process you know a bring capital but also sometimes great know-how that we can help execute in africa and help accelerate economic growth in africa and then we also do quite a bit of advisory helping people figure out asia um you know one one stream is tourism something i feel very very passionate about if we were to have one priority as a country I would say tourism. Mm. And for me... Over education. Over, over everything. If we had one priority, uh, and obviously one priority is very little because you sure. know, we've got a lot of different issues, but I'll tell you my rationale is to reach tourism as a priority, my filter is, number one, what do we have a global competitive advantage on? Number two, does this thing have the potential to absorb hundreds of thousands, millions of young workers who are relatively unskilled in the greater scheme of things. 
Three, if we get this right, can it be catalytic in its own right? Sure. And tourism is the only thing that I think fits that filter. And, you know, if people want to use different filters and come up with a better idea, that's cool. But for me, that's my filter. Okay, so let's get tourism right. Now, we've got an extremely smart team at South Africa Tourism with a great strategy. Our country strategy around tourism is very strong. COVID has been a disaster for tourism. It is decimating tourism and decimating livelihoods. However, we, we, we have to bounce back. Sure. And there's a lot of things happening at different levels to bounce back. My personal contribution, what we're doing as a firm, is helping to, to bring in high net with travelers from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to make a dent. That's not the answer to our tourism challenges, but that's, that's one contribution. But in general, I think it's really important that folks think about what is their tourism contribution. Mm. Um, and, and the adjacent benefits are phenomenal, you know, better security, you know, we bring in people who can potentially invest. We, we creating jobs and the, the knock on impact of getting tourism right is phenomenal. Um, so if I have one call to action to your listeners and your audience is, you know, if you aren't currently doing anything in the tourism space, think about it, you know, where does your skill set, your mm. network, where could it benefit the tourism sector? You know, we don't know when level one is going to be a reality for us. And even when we have level one, um, we aren't going to see massive droves of tourists coming. Yeah. You know, domestic tourism is going to resuscitate first. But the reality is our tourism sector requires um, international tourists to sustain itself. We can't sustain our sector purely on domestic travel. And intuitively, we're not going to see high amounts of domestic travel you know, maybe until Q1, Q2 next year, if that. So I just can't live with that problem. Mm. You know, again, mm. what are we solving for? Com- compelled to fix. Compelled yeah. compel to, to contribute, you yeah. know, absolutely. Um, we, we have to, have to, have to think through that piece very clearly. So a bit of a segue around domestic travel. Mm-hmm. Um, many listeners won't know this, but my kids from a previous marriage, uh, my first marriage, I only have two, but from my first marriage, uh, live in Cape Town with their mom. And obviously lockdown wasn't mm-hmm. great in terms of having the normal access that I would have to them. And I generally will fly down once a month to see them and, and couldn't do that and uh, have never driven to Cape Town, but mm-hmm. suddenly was faced with the quite exciting prospect of doing so because, you know, previously alluded to, you know, um, those opportunities are always great to see parts of our country that we haven't seen before. And once I got through the rigmarole of getting a, a permit at the Randburg Magistrates Court, um, off I went and did the drive in a day, mm-hmm. uh, which is also quite atypical because it's it's a fairly long drive. Didn't well, couldn't stay over halfway, so pretty much had to do so. And it was the easiest drive of my life. Mm-hmm. Not not because of the comfort of my car, because it has bucket seats and it wasn't comfortable at all. I had a back spasm for three or four days afterwards, but because I gobbled up Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast on mm-hmm. the way down, and uh, Dan has a unique ability to make a four hour long podcast sound interesting. Mm. And um, his first series is about the first world war. He called it a, a blueprint for Armageddon. And it's essentially a, a geopolitical buildup as to how, how that great war became possible and, and what we learned from it or didn't learn as it were. And the second one is called supernova in the East. Okay. And it's a precursor to the Asia Pacific mm. war, you know, 1937 to 1945, which people in the West call world war two. Um, and I've been listening to this, realizing that I know nothing, nothing mm-hmm. about 
the East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to make it as sure, as sure. broad as that. But I mean, I can point out countries on a map, sure. but if you ask me about, well, we can't even call it feudal Japan because that's a colonial, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, kind of term that we're imparting on on a country that didn't ask for it. But if you ask me about the history and the mm. legacy of any of these mm. great nation states, most of us, most of uh, when I say us, I mean privileged Westerners mm. are are inept. Yeah, um, and I think some of that is because mm. we are largely Americanized in our pop mm-hmm. culture consumption, mm-hmm. and we're largely. Um, British, mm-hmm. you know, you know, kind of a, a colonial legacy sure, and our way sure. of thinking about business mm-hmm. and, and education. And, yeah, and education. Mm-hmm. There's just a half of the planet that has been excluded from my consideration set. And I'm mm-hmm. realizing the more I learn, the less I know. And mm-hmm. this is a big part of what I don't know about. How much of an opportunity are we discounting because of our just our ignorance? You know? Massive. I think that there is this whole movement now about how do we decolonize education. That is mm-hmm. an actual thing. Um, and and it's, it's largely to your point, which is how, how do we have a more holistic understanding of the world that we operate in yeah. and not a Western-centric world? That, that, that is something we have to fix. Fortunately, you know, information is democratized today. Yeah. You know, so we can empower anybody with understanding where the world is and where the world is going. Um, and that's something that I feel that I'm, that makes me very optimistic about South Africa. You know, um, President Ramaphosa at, at the inauguration spoke about in 30 years time, we don't want to see poverty. That is possible, mm-hmm. you know, and where do we look to see that's possible is Asia. You know, if you think about where Singapore was 35, 40 years ago, not where they are today, which is a global superpower in the sense that they have financial capital, in the sense of their contribution to global GDP, um, in the sense that they a strategic hub for many global companies wanting to operate in Asia Pacific. But it's it's about understanding where in the world should we be looking for answers, friends, um, and and this isn't an anti-West thing because I think the West is a good partner for Africa and is a much better partner than they have been historically because, you know, they're not going to get away with it. Um, But Asia and solutions from LATAM and solutions from even Eastern Europe Mm. um, and solutions from other parts of Africa, you know, we need to have a much more holistic understanding of what is right, you know, what is um, best practice, what is possible. Um, yes, there's great stuff coming out of the Valley. There's great stuff coming out of MIT. We cannot and shouldn't ignore that. Uh, and in fact, one of the professors that you should have on, on your show is a gentleman called Dr. Srini Pillay, mm. who's a South African Durbanite who's you know at Harvard Medical School. He coaches um, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs on high performance in neurology and all sorts of stuff that I'm that's above my pay grade but but point being is there are centers of excellence around these issues and you know we should we should tackle the ball not the man hmm. um, and take great ideas from anywhere and yeah. be able to take great ideas anywhere but but on asia um i i would uh, you know I, my my niece is 13 years old and i'm telling my, my my she's learning zulu which i'm very happy about but i said to my my sister this child has to learn Mandarin. Like this child has to learn Mandarin. The China story is one of the most important economic 
social political stories of our time. Mm. And even if you aren't going to do business with China, that's cool. But if you can understand China, you're so well equipped for navigating the world and where and where it's going. Um, and then there's Southeast Asia, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar. These are Indonesia countries with enormous populations, a lot of growth, a lot of challenges. And part of what I've loved about it is a lot of similarities with Sub-Saharan Africa and our the private equity play that we were talking about is actually a Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa play. So you take a flex club, launch in South Africa, launch in Mexico, now launch, um, hopefully in the next six to 12 months, launch in Southeast Asia. That is not a unique story, you know, that there should be way more of those and there should be people who understand both of those ecosystems and can, you know, help organizations help organizations grow. But in, but in short, Asia is very fascinating, very rich culture, very diverse, like Africa. You know, Japan is very different to Vietnam, is very different to China. Even China is complex, as you know, you know, Hong Kong, China, you know, one country, two systems. There's a lot of complexity. In, Botswana and is different to South Africa, absolutely. is different to Angola. Abso- is different, yeah. abso- absolutely. And so it's, it's about curiosity. Yeah. Um, it's about having the humility to your point say, Actually, on that issue, we are ignorant and haven't spent enough time to understand. But then let's understand, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, we, we have a propensity as South Africans to be curious and to try and reach out and understand the other person's perspective, which is partly why a lot of South Africans who go overseas do really well, because they don't come at it from a, oh, this is how we do it in America and this mm. is how it should be done. It's like, okay, let's understand your perspective and, and let's meet each other halfway. Duke, as always, your your energy and optimism is infectious. Thank you for sharing so generously your wisdom and experience and some of the lessons that you've learned You know, in these remarkable environments that you've been in. It's a great reminder of the importance of sharing those mm-hmm. lessons and the power of mentorship and the power of the apprenticeship model that mm-hmm. we spoke about mm-hmm. earlier. Um, I look forward to seeing what you're going to create next, what you're going to make next. And um, yeah, my friend, just the best of luck for the next couple of months. Thanks a lot, Mike. You know, when I, I vividly remember meeting you and Nick Harolambus at Towers East at APSA in 2008, 2007. And I knew you guys will do cool things. And I'm so glad to see the evolution and what you both have gone on to do, but not surprised in the least. And uh, yeah, let's keep solving difficult things. Thanks, brother. Thanks. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.